Church, it's great to worship with you today. Hope you had a great week. I was telling a friend earlier, my step count this week was morbidly low. I do not apologize for that. And uh, loved every minute of inactivity. I hope you had a week full of joy, gladness, some good food, some good rest, and, uh, and a whole bunch of Jesus. And uh, I'm glad you're with us this morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you open up to the Gospel of Matthew? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 today, and if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use that pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 856 in the pew Bible. Uh, I've got good news for you. In 2024, if you want to better yourself, you get... 366 days to do so. It's a leap year. Isn't that great? 366 days to start new habits. 366 days to break bad habits. 366 days of an election year. I mean, it's going to be a dream. And by dream, I mean a nightmare that you never wake up from and every day gets worse and worse. Other than that, it's going to be great it's going to be a marvelous year together. I wonder what your goals are for the new year. It's that time. Today's the day. And uh, you might be thinking about ways you want to be better. You want to improve your life in the year ahead. I think that's a good practice. Some people are just vehemently anti-resolution. And that's fine. I respect that. But others of us are like, ah, here's some things I might want to focus my attention on in the upcoming year. There might be any number of things that you want to do different, you might want to do better, but let me encourage you to put at the front of your concerns your walk with Christ. Because what good are fitness goals if you are not eating the Bible? And what good are your relationship goals if your relationship with God is floundering? There is nothing more important in your life than your walk with Jesus absolutely nothing. And so today uh, we begin a new sermon series in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to study Matthew 3 through 7 for the next few months. And why don't we start at Matthew chapter 1? Well, we've, we've spent time in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 at previous times. You can find those sermons on our website. And so we pick up where we've last left off at Matthew chapter 3. And uh, we're going to spend time with Jesus in the opening days of his public ministry, including the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's a great place to start as we look ahead to the new year. New series, uh, new ministry for Jesus, new message from John the Baptist, and you thinking about how you might want to be new, what things you might want to change for yourself. Matthew chapter 3 is a great place to begin to consider what new things might look like for you. Matthew chapter 3 opens at a really pivotal point in the life of Christ. End of chapter 2, Christmas is over. Uh, the, the wise men have left, and there's this big gap of time between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus is a baby. At the start of chapter 3, he's roughly 30 years old. So there's been this big gap of time, but now we get to this place where um, the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ, begins to take on public notice. And it all begins with the forerunner of Jesus, the one who announces his coming. His name is John the Baptist. 
And so new sermon series, new beginnings, first days of Jesus' ministry. I wonder if maybe you need a new start, days of refreshing in your relationship with Christ. My hope for you as you look ahead to this new year is not just that you might tweak a couple of things here and there, but that you would take a true, full assessment of yourself, and that you'd be willing to hear the message from the prophet John today calling you to follow Jesus with every part of your being. John's message and invitation is not just for those who are non-believers, it is especially for those who are believers and who need to follow Christ more closely. So we're not going to drag Jesus with us into the new year, but rather we want to be the kinds of people who follow him into this year and every year to come. And so my goal in preaching this passage is to urge you towards a fresh start in your relationship with Christ. And our passage gives us three essentials to a new start with Jesus. So follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out." You need a new start in your walk with Christ. Do you find yourself struggling spiritually? Are, are you the, uh, the type of follower who right now your faith is fractured? And it could be for any number of reasons, situations you're going through, sin that you have immersed yourself in. You might walk in here looking the part and have the respect of everyone in this building, and yet you know when you stand before God the depths of your wickedness and your sin before Him. Today is a day for a fresh start. And in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this announcement from John the Baptist, we find three essentials for this fresh start. If you're going to start new in your walk with Christ, the first thing you need is a different direction. You're going to need a different direction. Our passage begins by introducing us to John the Baptist. Who was he and why was he such a big deal? Uh, first, it might be helpful 
if I explain to you who John was not. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to get John the Baptist confused with another prominent John in the Bible, and that's John the Apostle. But John the Baptist and John the Apostle are two different Johns. So I just by, for the sake of introduction, just in case you're new to the Bible, John the Baptist is not one of the 12 disciples. He's not an author. He didn't write anything that we have saved or preserved over time. Uh, John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. So his mother is Elizabeth, his dad Zechariah. You can read about his miraculous birth story in Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth, his mom, is cousins to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. John the Apostle, very different John. He is one of the twelve. He is an author. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three letters towards the end of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also is the author of the book of Revelation. Gave himself the nickname, the Beloved Disciple. Wasn't that sweet of John to do that for himself? Two different Johns. And you might think to yourself, man, that's confusing. How am I supposed to keep these guys straight? Hey, how many Johns we got in the room this morning, right? How many Joes? How many Marys? Look, Pastor Steve, got three Steves in one family. What are we doing, people? I mean, somehow we manage. We'll make it, okay? So, uh, John the Baptist, just remember, not one of the 12 different from John the Apostle, but still hugely important in the life of Christ and in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, We're given several tidbits of information about John in this opening paragraph. Uh, Verse 1 first tells us his location. He has a ministry in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 6 tells us it's at the Jordan River. The wilderness of Judea, it's a specific place. So it is a deserty type region east of Jerusalem uh, at the place close to where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. It's a place that geographically should be somewhat familiar to you because it is in the vicinity of the place where God parted the waters of the Jordan River so that Israel could cross from the wilderness into the promised land way back in the book of Joshua. So we're, we're somewhat familiar with this region already because of our time in the book of Joshua. So John is out in this wilderness uh, announcing these things about the coming Messiah, calling people to repentance and baptizing them. What's notable, perhaps most notable, about John's ministry location is where it is not taking place. He is not in Jerusalem. It is not in the temple. It's in the wilderness. The fact that it's in this wilderness region is an indictment on what is taking place in Jerusalem by way of religion, and it's an invitation for people to come and meet God truly and sincerely. So that's his location. Verse 2 tells us a little bit about his message, and his message is repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The call to repent is of monumental importance. He's not merely calling people to change their minds on a thing or or to just merely feel remorse over their sin, though those are aspects of repentance. But rather, biblical repentance is a change in your way of thinking, acting, living, and being. It is a total reversal of your life from one direction to Christ's direction. He's calling people to change the whole direction of their lives and their thinking. That's evident even just in the location that he is calling people 
out of Jerusalem into the wilderness in order to come and meet God, here's his message to repent. They are repenting just in the very act of walking out to meet with John. This was not a common message at the time. It was a rare and a radical message to a people who were steeped in empty religion. And this call to repentance is an urgent one from John. He says, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So in what way has the kingdom of heaven come near? Well, it has come near in the person of Jesus. It's His incarnation and soon the beginning of His public ministry put into motion God's redemptive work for His people. So we've got his location. We've got John's message. Verses 3 and 4 tell us about his pedigree. Here's why he's such a big deal. Verse 3 says, John is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. So Matthew tells us John the Baptist, here's why he's such a big deal. The prophet Isaiah prophesied 500 years ago of John's ministry in life. Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 3, said, uh, in the days before the Messiah comes, there will be one last prophet, one last voice, who prepares people for the arrival of the Messiah. He's going to be like a voice in the wilderness, which is where John's ministry is taking place. And he's going to say, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So ready yourself, prepare yourself through repentance by turning to God for the coming of the Messiah. Matthew's quoted from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. That verse that we just read here, we read at the beginning of our worship service together, was hugely important, especially to the early church. Before Christians were called Christians... They were called followers of the way or people of the way. And that name comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is our very identity in this verse, and it is specifically the identity of John the Baptist as the last of the prophets foretold by Isaiah, the great prophet, to ready the days for the Messiah. Not only is he connected with Isaiah, but then in verse 4, we're given this physical description of John that connects him to the prophet Elijah. We're told he wore a camel hair coat. He has this leather belt that he wears around his waist. This links him to Elijah. So pretty impressive pedigree. Isaiah and Elijah both connected to John the Baptist. And then finally, at the end of verse 4, we're told about his diet. His food was locusts and wild honey. That should strike you as strange. It would have struck a first century person as strange. Locusts and wild honey, these, these are the foods of poverty. So it speaks to his devotion. He is fully committed to God. He doesn't care about worldly goods. He's going to eat to survive, and he's going to commit his whole life, his every waking moment to doing the work that God has called him to do. We've got his location, his message, his pedigree. And then verses 5 and 6 speak to us about his results, the results of his ministry. Verse 5 says, Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, so that's the region that they're in, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. So people from all over were compelled by John's message 
And when those people came out to John at the Jordan River in the wilderness, they, they weren't coming to John, they were coming to God. This was a spiritual movement on behalf of these people to return to God and to walk with Him in true faith. And there, John would baptize them in the Jordan River. Let's talk for a moment, just very briefly, about John's baptism. What was it? Because it's confusing. It's not the same as the baptism we practice today. There's something different about it. And so you have a, a few different options that people have written about in the past. So one option, some people will say, well, what John was doing was he was leading people in Jewish ritual washings. Very common in Jewish practice in that day, these sorts of ritual washings to purify yourself. Others would say, no, this, this was a daily act of devotion that belonged to this small community, this small Jewish sect uh, in a region called Qumran. It, these guys were uber serious about walking with God. They were zealot-like in their love and, and fervor for God. And, and John is often connected with that group at Qumran. And so they're saying it could be this daily act of devotion that, that bears the hallmarks of the Qumran community. A third option, people would say, this is a baptism of conversion from non-Judaism to Judaism. Loads written about all those options merit to every one of those arguments, but there are also reasons why these options are not satisfactory. First of all, to say this is Jewish ritual washings, I mean, it could be, but those washings were for the purpose of ritual purity, and John never connects his baptism with ritual purity. And even though some would say, well, this is connected to Qumran, it's possible, but those baptisms were daily baptisms. John baptism seems like a one-time event. And could it be for the sake of conversion? It could be. That's a possibility. But baptism for conversion was only done for Gentiles, never for Jewish people. So I find all three of these explanations or possibilities lacking Another option, the one that I side with, and you're welcome to disagree with me here, is it just seems that John's baptism is an utterly unique event, different from all other ritual washings at the time. And verse 6 gives us another unique aspect of John's baptism practice. You see, people were confessing their sins. They show up to where John is, confess their sins, they've come in repentance, and they are baptized. And so this confession of sin was a unique aspect of baptism here practiced by John. And that's what makes his baptism unique and I think special in this one moment in time in this one place. Uh, It was a call to people to be made right with God, not in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, not through sacrifices, but through faith in God alone. So John's in the wilderness calling people to repentance. He's foretold by Isaiah. He's like Elijah. He's the last of the prophets. His ministry restores people to a right relationship with God and prepares them for the Messiah. John is a big, big deal. And his ministry was a powerful ministry that still speaks to us today. And if you're considering a fresh start, a new beginning, you have to consider the voice of the prophet who calls you to repent because the kingdom of God 
has come near. So imagine with me that by some miracle, you are allowed a conversation with John the Baptist tonight. And you say to him, John, looking for a fresh start? I don't need an overhaul. I'm doing pretty good in a lot of areas. What advice do you have for me? Based on what we just read, I think John might hold on to this very same message and say to you, it's time to live your life in a different direction. It's time to repent. You've got to turn away from all the garbage, all your self-righteousness. It's time to confess your sin, to be forgiven, to find God's mercy that is new every morning. It's time for you to turn to God. I don't know how we can hear the voice of the prophet and think that half measures will do when it comes to our walk with Christ. Or that a small tweak here or there is what's going to make things just run perfectly. But when we assess ourselves truly and fairly in light of the holiness of God, we have to hear and heed the voice of the prophet to repent, to turn, to confess our sin, and to find forgiveness and new days in Christ there. If you're going to have a new start in this coming year, it's going to begin with a new direction. There's a second essential you need for this new beginning, and your second essential is a hard truth. That's what we have in this next paragraph is we have John giving really hard truth to really hard people. So in verses 7 to 10, we meet the opposition. And the opposition are a combined group of Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. So who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? If you're new to the Bible, let me explain this to you uh, real briefly. Uh, In first century Judaism, there were different sects, different groups who had different approaches to the practice of the faith. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the more prominent sects that were practicing Judaism at the time in this part of the world. The Pharisees, they were people of the law. They were legalists. They were law teachers. They were law observers. They were very conservative and fundamentalistic in their approach to the law of God. And they believed that their practices, their systems for obeying the law of God were actually helpful for common people who weren't literate, who didn't understand or have access to the word like they might have, like the Pharisees might, they felt like their systems actually helped the common man in his or her relationship with God, helped them in their obedience. The other side of the coin are the Sadducees. If the Pharisees were the party for the common man, the Sadducees catered to aristocrats. They consisted of many different chief priests and upper-class people. They were much more liberal in their understanding and practice of Judaism. Let me just say there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to conservatives and liberals. And so here we have these two groups that are normally at war with each other, at odds with each other all the time. But they show up on the same day, at the same time, in the same place to see what's happening with John. They're not there because they're interested in spiritual renewal for themselves. It would seem they are sent as an official delegation by religious authorities in Jerusalem. 
So they're sent on a mission to gather information and then to come back and report back to the religious authorities what John is saying and what John is doing. And so I imagine in this scene, when they show up, they would have been recognized as powerful and important men. The people who are there on the banks of the Jordan River would see this delegation arrive and know that this is a big deal. And so I love how John addresses them in verse 7. He says, brood of vipers. We really need to introduce that phrase into our lexicon again. <laughs> Next time you catch your kids doing naughty things, brood of vipers. What you, someone complains about the meal you just made, brood of vipers. I mean, it works. It's really intense in a really direct, derogatory term. These men show up dressed the part, demanding respect just by their status. And John says, you are here spreading poison. You brood. You, you claim to speak for God, to represent God. All you do is spread poison everywhere you go. I hear sarcasm in John's rhetorical question. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's as if he's needling them a bit. He's like, oh, oh, so you're here to avoid the wrath of God? Is that why you've come? Oh, you've come to be baptized, to repent, to confess your sin? Is that, well, who told you to do that? Because I didn't tell you to do that. So I, I don't know why you're here, but look, if that's your goal, admittedly, I'm reading a lot of sarcasm into John here, but I, I think this is what we're getting at here. Look, if this is your goal, then verse 8, you need to produce fruit consistent with repentance. And the fact that he says that in verse 8 is an indictment on the lives they are leading. They are not producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Though they are super religious, they are mega hypocrites. Though they claim to know God, they don't know Him at all. They know the traditions. They know the religion. They know the, the, just the basics of how to get by. But nothing about their systems has united them with God. They are hypocrites through and through. Their fruit is rotten because while they have a temple and sacrifices and prayers, they don't know God. But John anticipates their response in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So if if this group were to defend themselves, they would not argue from their righteousness. They're not concerned about their righteousness. Because for them, their righteousness doesn't come through their deeds. Their righteousness comes from their ethnicity. It's their heritage. They would say, oh, we belong to the people of Abraham. We're born into this. Therefore, God has to do us well. He has to be pleased with us. But that's never the way it's been for God's people. Never. Didn't we see this in Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab? And didn't we see this in Joshua chapter 9 with the Gibeonites? God's people are not people by birth. They are people by faith. Only and always. And so John's message to them is radical. It is intense. Don't come here being all flamboyant, all important, all full of yourselves. 
as representatives of of the temple that Herod built. No, you you don't know God. You're a brood of... You say Abraham's your father? Wrong. You're a child of the serpent. This is intense language from John on this day. And it doesn't fit very well with 21st century rules of etiquette. Well, that's, I mean, that's a little harsh. He didn't ask, I mean, how do they feel? What do they think? He's not giving them a chance to respond. He doesn't have to. Because sometimes hard hearts need hard truth. And even if John's message is hard, it is not without grace. Like he tells them the axe is at the root of the trees, verse 10. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's telling them there's still time. You came out here on official religious business. Look, if, if you wanted to repent, confess your sin, turn to God, you can do that here and now. And so he speaks this harshness to them. But he does so with grace because a hard grace is still grace. There's still time to turn. Who cares if it hurt these people's feelings? He's trying to rescue their souls from eternal fire. So there's not time to pitter-patter around and play niceties. He's got to get directly to it. He's very New England in this, by the way. He's got to get to the point. Because now is the appointed time. This is the day of salvation. Don't let your religious trappings confuse you and make you think that you're okay with God by whatever merit you think you have. You've got to come to Him in repentance and confession to find what you're looking for. So imagine with me that by some miracle, you're able to have a conversation with John the Baptist tonight. And you said to him, John, I'm looking for a fresh start. I I don't think I need an overhaul. I'm just, I'm doing pretty good in a lot of areas. What advice do you have for me? I think based on this paragraph, verses 7 to 10, John might say something like this. Are you a child of God or a child of the snake? And don't tell me you were baptized as a baby. Don't tell me your dad is a pastor. Don't tell me your grandma was a believer. You have not measured yourself correctly, and you are almost out of time. This is your chance given by God to turn to Him and to become a tree that bears the fruit of righteousness. Now's the time. A new start requires a new direction. It might require a hard truth. Look, there's times in our lives where a gentle word is all the nudge we need. And there are times when we need the hard truth. And there's a third essential we're going to need if you're going to have a fresh start, a new beginning. You need a mighty Savior. You have to have a mighty Savior for all of this to work. And so that's what John pivots to next. The remainder of this scene I take as John speaking to the whole crowd. He's just spoken to the religious professionals, but now I think his attention is to the whole crowd in verse 11 where he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor And gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with fire that never goes out. So 
I take John speaking to the whole crowd now, and his subject matter here is the Messiah. What is the Messiah like? And he describes the Messiah in four very specific ways. In verse 11, we find three of those descriptors. First of all, in verse 11, he describes the Messiah as powerful. Beginning in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. More powerful in what way? In every conceivable way. He is the omnipotent creator of all things. He is the God of heaven and earth, of life and death. John is going to help people to repent, but the Messiah will give people everlasting life. He's more powerful than John in every conceivable way. Second, the Messiah is holy. So John says in the middle of verse 11, he says, I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. Undoing sandals was a slave's job. And the Messiah is so other, so transcendently valuable, so holy, 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 that John the prophet, foretold by Isaiah, is not even worthy to be his slave. That's how valuable, how holy, how other the Messiah is. Third way he describes the Messiah in verse 11 is as the way to God. John said, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's going to be the way to God. He himself will do this work. Not by any other means. It's not him or sacrifices. It's not him or the temple. It's not him or your good work. It is him and only him. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? Well, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to say that your whole life will be immersed in God. And what that looks like for believers now is that upon our conversion, when you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus in faith, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. It's a miracle. Every conversion is a miracle because God cannot get any closer to us. God the Holy Spirit lives in his children. So what does it mean, though, to be baptized by fire? There are different opinions on this. There's a positive opinion that connects baptism with the Holy Spirit to the word fire. So it connects those words together as if John is saying, the Messiah will baptize you with spirit fire. That's really cool. We have word pictures, descriptions in the New Testament that link the Holy Spirit and fire. Think of Acts chapter 2 and the falling of the Spirit at Pentecost and tongues of fire danced on the heads of the disciples there before they went out and spoke the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem. So we're familiar with that imagery. That's a possibility. I'm not going to say that's wrong, but I take a different view. I take the word fire to be negative, meaning it's describing the judgment of the unrepentant sinner. Every place else in this passage that speaks about fire, it's spoken of in terms of judgment of sinners. And so when he says he will baptize you, when John says the Messiah will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, I take that as a judgment of reward, blessing, salvation. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I take that as the judgment of of unrepentant sinners. 
He's the judge. That's the other thing that John tells us here. He's the judge. That, that picture of judgment with fire continues in verse 12. He says, his winnowing shovel or fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. In this word picture, you want to be the wheat. He's the harvester. He takes in the wheat. The wheat's what he wants. He's going to collect that. He's going to store it in the barn. The chaff, that's the refuse, the throwaway, the stuff that's unusable. That goes into the fire to be burned. So John uses this word picture to help us understand the harvest of souls. Some will be gathered into the barn, others thrown into the fire that never goes out. The Messiah is powerful. He's holy. He is the way to God. He is the judge of our souls. And if you're going to have a new start, a fresh start, it goes through him. Not dragging him along towards your intended goals, but you following him wherever he leads. And so imagine with me that by some miracle tonight, you were able to have a conversation with John the Baptist. Can you imagine that? I don't know how it happens, but it does. And when you speak to him, you begin by saying, John, I'm looking for a fresh start. I don't need an overhaul. I'm doing pretty good in a lot of areas, but hey, what advice would you have for me? And based on what John said here, he might respond something like this. Your new start is in Jesus the Messiah. He is powerful to save you, to restore you, to deliver you. He is holy and you're a sinner. But the good news is that he's a friend of sinners. He is the way to God and one day soon he will judge your soul. It seems like all of life boils down to what you do with Jesus. He might say something like that based on this. Because what we need is not better behavior. We need redeemed souls. What we need is not a, a modification in how we think or how we live. We need our whole lives given over to Christ. We don't come to God with our resume and our merits because those things leave us in judgment. We come to God only through our one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. And His salvation is perfect. His rescue is forever. His deliverance is total for all those who come to the Father through Him. This is the way to a fresh start, a new beginning. John the Baptist heralds the Messiah by calling people to a new beginning that involves a new direction, a hard truth, and a mighty Savior. All of life boils down to what you do with Jesus. All of life. Like it doesn't matter about the religious labels you carry or some sort of heritage you might point to or even the good works that you think you have accumulated for yourself. All of life boils down to what you do with Jesus. And when Christ comes to your life, He changes things. Changes everything. Not a few things, not tiny tweaks, but he changes your life radically and irreversibly. We heard Isaiah 40 verse 3 earlier describing John the Baptist's ministry. But that ministry anticipates a message from God for people who are racked by sin, broken by sin, living a hypocrite's life, hurting in every way people can hurt. 
Because in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, the message that goes out from the throne of God is this, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In Christ is our comfort, our rest, our forgiveness, all the blessings of God only in Christ and so will you answer the call of the prophet today? Are you a follower of Christ? Have you turned your life to him? If you haven't, I hope you'll respond to John's urgency. Now is the time. Today is the day. Jesus doesn't just tell you to do better or to try better. He saves you in the most remarkable way. Your sin is sin against God. And in God's economy, all sin must be punished by death. But Jesus loves you, and He died on the cross in your place for your sin. He died on a judgment tree for you. And then three days later, He rose from the dead. He loves you, and He did all of this out of love so that when you turn to Him in faith, your death is gone, and His eternal life is yours. Won't you hear the call of the prophet today and turn your life to Jesus? And what do you do with John's message if you are already a follower of Jesus? Again, let's not leave this passage to the unconverted as if it only has merit for those who don't yet know Christ. He is speaking to a religious people. He's speaking to us. So for Christians who are tired or wandering or broken by sin, the prophet points the way. He tells you to turn to Christ, to repent. And let it begin with the confession of your sin. John the Apostle, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, called us to confession. He said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come to God in confession, we have nothing to fear because we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who died our death and has made a way for us to know the mercies of God. Confession of sin is not some magic incantation or a ritual that in and of itself erases our sin. Right? Our confession doesn't obligate God to us as if we've done some spiritual deed that He has to reward. The power of the confession of sin does not lie in you, but it's in the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. And when we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous and will cleanse us. Maybe your start to the new year, all 366 days of it, is not to say, here's the ways I'm going to do better. But here's who I am in my brokenness. God, before you, here's who I am in my sin and my doubt and my fear and my anger. Here's who I am. Forgive me. And He does and he will. Humbly name your sin to your powerful, holy, mighty Savior and let him restore you so that your life would become a tree that bears fruit by being a follower of the way. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I don't know what we expected when we uh, came to church on this day, New Year's Eve. We probably didn't expect to be put in line of the phrase brood of vipers. But Father, how good are you 
that you would grab our attention. You would grip our hearts so that we wouldn't waste this day. And what makes this day a day for new beginnings is not because it's some holiday, but it's because this is Resurrection Sunday. This is New Life Sunday. The time is now. So, Father, help your message to land on hearts with urgency. Bring us to Christ. Father, I pray for friends in here that don't know Christ as their Savior, that you would, um, you would grip them, open their eyes, help them to believe, to turn their lives to Christ fully and completely, to not rely on an infant baptism or an adult baptism or any other religious pedigree, but only by faith in Christ to find their salvation and rescue. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are struggling who might fit the label hypocrite, who might be hurting in their walk with you. Father, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, new today. We come in confession. We come in repentance. We come to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to respond uh, in worship.